All right, as we prepare to hear the word of God, the scripture for today's sermon comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 to 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 to 11. This is the reading of God's word. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Now let's turn our hearts and attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you, Pastor Jimmy. Well, it's good to bring God's word on maybe one of the hottest Sundays of uh, the year. Uh, and hopefully it fires up our hearts to, to hear from him. Uh, I'm Andrew. I'm one of the pastors. And I'm grateful to, uh, as we've had a wonderful missions month, as we've closed that out, and as we look ahead to prepare for our upcoming series on the book of Acts, um, I thought it would be appropriate to look at perhaps the greatest missionary of all time, Paul, who wrote this passage, and to learn from him. And so uh, to ask those questions, what motivated him? What motivated Paul as this great missionary figure? Uh, why are missionaries, as we heard last month, why are they so confident about uh, following God into these places that maybe many of us would never consider going? What compelled them? What is their confidence? Today, what is your confidence? Why do you choose to live the way you do? So these are questions that I want us to wrestle with and think through during this time together as we explore this topic of, of really confidence. Confidence, it's important. It's important to us all, right? Whether it's for jobs, it's important to be confident, to even go into a job interview confidently. It's a quality that is very sought after and attractive. For those of us who play sports, we know that confidence is important to execute and shoot your shot, right, to make sure you're ready. Uh, as a young adult pastor, talking to some of our young singles, we also know it, confidence is important to shoot your shot in a relational sense too, right, to uh, be confident is a very attractive quality that people look for in a significant other. You know, confidence inspires people to follow, uh, inspires a following. Great leaders are usually confident leaders. And, and the reason is confidence, it inspires a sense of safety and security. 
Confidence comes from the Latin roots that really mean with full trust. Confidence is linked to what you trust in. We all place our confidence, our trust in something. What is that for you this morning? Is it worth putting your confidence in? Is it going to sustain you through the ups and the downs of life? Is it a sturdy confidence or is it shaky? Do you second guess yourself often? Are you secure or insecure? So today I want to explore this, this topic through, uh, by first asking that question, where is your confidence? And then two other points of how to answer, how Paul answers that question. So first, where is your confidence? Second, losing as gaining. And third, knowing Jesus, known by Jesus. So we're going to dive straight in. First point, where is your confidence? Our passage starts with Paul saying, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Philippians, it's this book written during the early development of the church. And so a lot of missions activities going on, spreading the name of Jesus, trying to make Jesus known. But as they were doing that, they came up against opposition. They came up against those who had a different message, those who challenged some of what they were teaching. And that's what Paul, that's whom Paul is referring to. It's this party that you might call the Judaizers. They uh, they believe that to be saved, you had to be circumcised. To be saved means you had to be circumcised and follow the law in order to be considered one of God's people. They found their confidence in their achievements and what they did. They were works driven. In other words, they were very self-confident. And Paul, Paul's upset with this. He He uses harsh words, look out for the dogs, right? And his point is, if you're so confident, if you're so confident you're right with God, if you check all of those boxes, and let's talk about that. And so verse four to six, in our passage today, Paul, he goes on to say, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, like if you wanna play this game, all right, I have more. And I want us to look at what Paul does here. He lays out his pedigree, We have seven things that he highlights that used to give him confidence because he used to be just like them. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcised on the eighth day meant since birth, he was a true Jew, a Jew among Jews. He he was born into it. He didn't convert later in his life. Goes on to say, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. What? Why name drop the tribe of Benjamin? Well, the tribe of Benjamin was a distinguished tribe because Benjamin was the tribe where the first king of Israel came from, right? King Saul. Perhaps this is where Paul got his Jewish name, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, when Israel went through uh, the division where they separated into two kingdoms, the tribe of Benjamin sided with the southern kingdom of Judah. They were loyal to the line of David, ultimately the line where Jesus would come. And the holy city of Jerusalem fell within those boundaries. So this tribe was a tribe that kind of had some bragging rights. You could say, hey, our tribe is, is a big deal. 
He goes on to say, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Why does he mention that? Well, at the time, the Greco-Roman Empire was the dominant superpower. They took over everything. And so a lot of people assimilated. A lot of Hebrews became uh, those who fully were immersed in the Greek, uh, Greek culture and language. And some of them stopped speaking their mother tongue. And some of us were familiar with this, right? Maybe if you're second generation from an immigrant family, uh, sometimes my own parents, they're, they're upset. They're like, hey, you don't even speak a lick of Chinese. You, you know, so this is sort of what he's saying is I know, I know full, fully the tradition, the culture of my forefathers. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I can speak it fluently. I'm fully in it. And he goes on to say, as to the law of Pharisee, a Pharisee, these were the religious elites of the time. Pharisees itself is a term that meant separated ones. So they were a Jewish party or religious sect that separated off from all common tasks and life in order to devote all of their life to following the law. They were super strict. If you thought of any group that was the most disciplined, most uh, detail-oriented to the law, to following everything, it was the Pharisees. And this is Paul's background. He goes on in verse 6 to list a few achievements as the zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was saying, before I encountered Jesus, I was doing what you were doing. I thought Christians, they were misled. I sought to imprison them. I sought to destroy the church. I was so zealous that I would do anything to stop this message from going out. As the righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, so disciplined and strict. He was... He was doing everything according to this standard that the Judaizers have laid out. So in summary, his point is if anyone could lay claim to be righteous before God because they live up to certain things, he said, that'd be me. I'm probably more qualified than all of you. So if you want to go here to this standard, I have every reason to be confident. Now, some of us might think, okay, what does this have to do with me? You know, I'm not trying to live up to this kind of a standard, find my confidence here. But I think Paul's point here is very important for us because all of us, we find our confidence often in other things in this world. Right? Maybe for some of us, for some of you, it's body image. Right? We care a lot about how we look. We're at the gym all the time. We worry about everything we're putting in, our diet. Maybe it's body image. Maybe for others, it's possessions, material possessions, how large your house is and where it's located. Maybe how many of them you own. For some of us, maybe it's what we drive, our car, or what we wear, designer. Maybe some of us, it's our education. Maybe some of us, we know those people who wear uh, the university that they went to, they're always repping it, right? They wear the sweater every day. And it's pretty clear that, yeah, you're pretty proud of where you went to school, huh? Maybe it's the people you know or the people who know you, right? We might know some people, maybe us ourselves are very quick to name drop, hey, I know this person, because we feel a little sense of confidence when we're connected to them. Maybe those people aren't like famous or celebrity. Maybe those are your family, your background. I think of uh, my family, maybe some of others who, maybe your parents have said, hey, 
You know, our family, we came from the, the emperor's line or the line of kings. Or, uh, and it's something to brag about, to be confident in. And for others of us, maybe it's our kids. Maybe we know those people. Maybe we're one of them who can't stop talking about, hey, you know what my kid did? Uh, and we list their achievements because it feels like it reflects us. It makes us confident. You see, I'm sure all of us at times will lean into some of these things and place our confidence and our trust in some of these things. And so to us and to his opponents, Paul here is saying, hey, these are standards that people place their confidence in, but I don't do that. that isn't our, that's not my standard anymore. I place my confidence elsewhere. And so this brings us to our second point, and we want to see where Paul puts his confidence in. So losing as gaining, verse 7 to 8, it reads this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul counts the previous standard that he operated by as rubbish. This word, it's found uh, only here. It's a vulgar word. It's a, uh, a word that is probably more likened to the English word crap or maybe the four-letter S word. But, you know, we're not going to say that here. Um, but it's equivalent of saying, I count all of these other things as really crap that they have no bearing on my confidence anymore. I don't trust in those things, right? All the things he had, his previous status and his position, the material possessions he owned, his Jewish heritage, he counted it all as loss, all as crap, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And he's even willing to suffer loss, right? All of the loss of all of it for Jesus to suffer for what mattered most to him, right? All of us, if you really think about it, what matters most to you, you will endure the most suffering for, right? We're all willing to suffer for things that we think matter. In other words, we're all willing to suffer for the things we put our confidence in, right? It's just a matter of what that is. If your goal, it's all about money and to be rich, then you might suffer being overworked, long hours. You might count as loss, friendships and relationships. Yeah, I don't need those things. You might count as lost your integrity. Yeah, it's okay. We could cut corners as long as I get here because this is what I trust in. This matters most. Maybe if it's body image, you might suffer the discomfort of working out and dieting. Maybe count as lost social activities that center on food and drink. Yeah, I can't go there. I can't. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to pass on that. You see, for Paul, what mattered most to him was Jesus. And so he was willing to suffer the loss of his property, probably disinheritance from his uh, Jewish family, loss of status, right? Loss of status in being linked to this elite religious group called the Pharisees. And for Paul, it wasn't just abstract. It wasn't just like, I'm willing to suffer, but he actually did. You see, Philippians is written while Paul is imprisoned, imprisoned in, in the jails. He lost everything. He lost everything, and yet he still considered it worth it. 
worth it to be in the circumstance he was in. The beliefs he used to hate, he wanted to prevent, he now wanted to propagate. He thought, this is worth giving my life to. His confidence shifted. It shifted radically from self-confidence to Christ's confidence. Verse 9, it says this, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, some commentators will say that the word faith in Christ, but that which comes through faith is better taken as that which comes through faithfulness of Christ. That that word is taken a little different grammatically. And I I tend to agree with that, the faithfulness of Christ, because Paul, I think his point here is to say that my confidence and your confidence ought not to be on self-achievement, but it ought to be on Christ's achievements. Faithfulness that he had on our behalf. That Jesus lived up to God's perfect standard, obeying to the smallest, minutest of details, and then he died for us. He died for us sinful people who could never measure up to God's standard. And so our confidence, Paul's confidence, is not in found by looking in at how great we are. It's not found by looking down on how bad others are, but it's only found by looking up at how faithful Jesus is. And so we can trust and have full confidence that all things will work out for our good because our good shepherd will be with us through all things. That our confidence comes from Jesus' love for us, a love that can never be separated from us. This morning, have you experienced and tasted that? I do think if we have, we can count other things as loss. Because there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. And that brings us to our final point. Knowing Jesus, being known by Jesus. You know, in preparation uh, for this sermon, I I tend to want to read the passage over and over to really soak in it. And on one occasion, something really caught me off guard. You know, I think I was used to thinking... Paul lists all this stuff for his sake, you know, endure suffering, count everything as loss. We just heard where he finds his confidence. In other words, he's saying, I believe in God and I follow God in order that blank. And I remember just thinking, I believe in God and I follow God in order that, and the first thing that comes to my mind is in order that I might be saved. I want to ask maybe some of you, is that what you think? Like the first thing that comes to your mind, believe and trust and follow God, endure suffering, live your life that way in order that you might be saved. But it's surprising, verse 10 through 11, that Paul, the first thing he says after all of that is, in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. In other words, it's a very interesting thing. I think it's paradigm shifting if you really think about it. The motivation to become a Christian, to follow Jesus, is what? 
And I think a lot of us, maybe you are fed into maybe the four spiritual laws. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And, it, and then it ends like, believe in him and you'll be saved. Yes, that's true. But is that the main thing? Is that the main motivation behind all that should drive us? I don't think so. I, I think here Paul reveals to us what is the main thing. Now, why does this matter? Well, I think if our main goal is, okay, I just want to get into heaven and be saved, like, I just want to make sure I covered uh, my tail and I'm good. Then it's not a surprise why last month, maybe missions month, the whole time you're like, this has no bearing on my life. Like, I could care less about all of this because my mission is just so that I can get into heaven. But I think it goes beyond that. Paul's point is that our motivation ought not primarily be positional like my status that I'm positioned to go to heaven. No, it's not meant to be primarily positional, but primarily relational, right? Relational and personal. It's not just about what God did for you in the past and then what he will give you in the future. But Paul's motivation also extends into the present that we get to know him, to experience fellowship with him. And I think some of us, need to shift our perspective on maybe why, what, what's the most important thing about being a Christian. You see, uh, when Paul goes on, he says, he, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and I may share his sufferings. Now that's kind of interesting, suffering. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Suffering, you know, it's, uh, a lot of psychologists will say that pain, suffering and pain, it's a, a powerful ingredient in connecting people, in bonding people, right? In, in, in uh, helping people cooperate and, and be uh, connected. So shared painful experiences are really good at doing that. And that's, not a, that's why it's not a surprise that when people go to war or there's this special camaraderie that develops because of what people suffered through together. You might say friendship in many ways is forged best through suffering. There's an intimacy that comes from shared suffering. I think this is why Jesus on the topic of friendship says, greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In other words, a key ingredient to friendship, right? A key, think about this, a key ingredient to friendship is a willingness to suffer for your friend, right? And an unwillingness to undergo even minor suffering, you might say that's not really friendship. That it's probably more just a relationship built on convenience and utility, what I get from it, but it's not really friendship. And so today, my question, I want to ask us, how's your friendship with Jesus? Is there a willingness to follow him even into the suffering so we can share that, to share that and understand that experience, to lean into his own heart? It's a hard question but we need to wrestle with it. And I really believe that suffering, as we do suffer on his account for his sake, for the great commandment and the great commission, that it will fuel our intimacy with Jesus, that we might know him, not in an abstract, theoretical way, but that it would come, become deep and real, personal. It's the path into the heart of God. Uh, I was always very uh, 
interested in this verse in Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse 41. It kind of confused me for some time, but basically uh, the early apostles, this is maybe one of their first uh, occasions of being uh, experiencing suffering, to be like flogged and beaten for the sake of Jesus, right? They, uh, the religious elites were like, hey, we want you to stop saying this message. Just don't speak about it anymore. They said, we can't help it. This is what our life is all about. And they were, and they were beaten. And it says this in Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And that caught me off guard, rejoicing, like, are they, are they masochists? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think the reason they were able to rejoice, what could that reason be? I think it's because they felt this is a glimpse of what my Savior suffered for me, that they were leaning in to Jesus' own experiences. They were reminded of it, and that provided fellowship, sharing, intimacy, friendship. I think missionaries today, some of us are like, why would they ever consider doing that? To go maybe uproot your family, to go somewhere uncomfortable, uh, perhaps even at places where Christianity, there's heavy persecution, where you can't even be public about it, where you can't even gather openly like this, like we are. Why would they do this? And I think the answer is that it's to know him. It's to know him, to make him known because they are so known by him. And they're willing to go through the suffering. And maybe some of them, maybe most of them, know Jesus a whole lot better than we do. Uh, There's a couple other passages for you. I just wanted to highlight. It's on the slide. just shows how this theme is threaded across the entire, uh, entire scriptures really, suffering, suffering connected with following Jesus, the cost of what it takes to follow after him. And a question I want us to ask today, have you ever suffered as a consequence of faithfulness to Christ? If not, why? Is it because of complacency or compromise? Now, I ask these questions to myself as well, because these are hard things to wrestle with, but we have to, right? This is the word of God. And I thought of my own sufferings. I don't think I've had too many, honestly. I think of like maybe two times. Once I was a a student on the college campus trying to evangelize, remember trying to talk to somebody and uh, said, hey, you know, would you like to have a conversation about just things that you believe in? And he said, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah. Great, I'm going to own you. And I was like, oh, shoot, what's, ha- what's happening right now? I guess this is what, this is what it is. And uh, uh, it, it would, turned out it was an okay conversation. Uh, but it helped frame the expectation. Like these are, are kind of normal conversations to maybe expect. Uh, another time I was eating with my mom at a restaurant uh, and a family friend came by. You know, they were talking and then she uh, walked over to me and said, hey, Andrew, I heard you're a pastor now. And I said, yep, I am. yeah, I am. And she said, you know, your parents sacrificed so much for you. You should have done better. You could have done better. 
And clearly, uh, I mean, I was upset at the time. Uh, And clearly she operated from a different perspective of confidence and trust. Uh, But now I look back and I rejoice. I rejoice and I'm trying to rejoice because that's a picture, a tiny picture, but a picture nonetheless of following Jesus. And I hope that we can challenge ourselves to follow him even through the suffering. Today, uh, I really wanted to up the stakes for us because Christianity does have a high cost. It's not a low bar. Jesus never lowers the bar for people, but he makes it very clear. And I think we need to, to be mindful of that. We need to count the cost. We need to be prepared. I think as pastors and leaders, it's on us to also prepare you for what will be ahead in following Jesus. You see, suffering is nothing more than taking away of good things that the world offers for our enjoyment, right? It's just a removal of that. It's a removal of uh, job, relationships, reputation, maybe sex, family, friends, wealth, health, etc. right? It's when these things are taken away that we experience suffering. When these things are taken away, whether it's by force, whether it's by chance, whether it's by choice, we, we hurt, we are pained, we suffer. But if we followed Paul and these teachings, the teachings of Jesus, and if we've already counted all of those things as loss, I think we're prepared to suffer. And that prepares us. Not that it makes it easier, but I do think it prepares us that we can be losing confidence in the things of this world as we're gaining confidence in Christ. Uh, as I was reading a, a book on suffering one time, uh, this, this excerpt was burned really into my mind and my heart. Uh, I hope and I pray it's helpful to you. It's, it's, really, it's kind of long, but it is that good. So let's give our attention. This is a quote by D.A. Carson. Sometimes we want to protect our children or our flock from too many things. For instance, we sometimes try to protect them from the caustic scorn of peers who have little time for Christian values. After all, we console ourselves. The Bible says much about earning a good reputation with outsiders. But that reputation is for integrity, kindness, love. It is never to be won at the expense of silence. I look at my children and I wish for them enough opposition to make them strong. Enough insults to make them choose enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost, a cost eminently worth it, but still a cost. A church that is merely comfortable, that never evangelizes, never encourages its people to stand on the front line will never be strong, never be grateful, never be able to sort out profoundly Christian priorities. I want us to really soak this in. I hope you soak this in often, reflect on this often. Um, can you pray that for yourself, for your kids? As a father now, it's, it's a hard prayer as I think about my own daughter and say, Lord, send, potentially send suffering her way if it will lead her to you, if it will lead her to knowing you, loving you. We don't want to be a church that waters down discipleship that lowers the bar because a watered-down Christianity isn't a Christianity. We want to be a church encouraging its people to stand on the front lines. 
I remember a conversation I had with uh, our missionary partner in Japan, Mark Bocanegra, and I was just saying, man, we're so encouraged by you to, you know, go out and be on the front lines and, you know, we're supporting. And, uh, and he said, and he corrected me, and I was so grateful he corrected me. And he said, no, 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 uh, not that I'm on the front line. We're on the front lines. We're on the front lines. And I needed to hear that because it was a reminder, Christians, no Christian gets to get the backseat to just relax, not be engaged, right? It's not as if missionaries get the monopoly on suffering and we don't have to. No, we're all on the front lines. They look different. They all look different. You're on the front line in a different way than I am, but we're all engaged. And if you're not on a front line today, then it's likely you've either forgotten or maybe you were never hard-pressed to choose a side to begin with. I'm reminded of a quote by Charles Spurgeon, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter, right? Maybe some of us, we need that encouragement and reminder today. Yeah, I got to be on mission. And for others of us, maybe we need to be honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm an imposter. These are important things, important things to reflect on. You know, I want to end with the question, if someone looked at your life, what would they conclude is your supreme confidence? The thing you trust in the most, like, I'm all about this. You know, I pray you and I that we would really count the cost of following Jesus, to count all things as lost, losing confidence in the things of this world, to gain him. To be engaged in in his mission, to make him known to the ends of the earth, even at the expense of suffering. That we might even go to the lengths of rejoicing in our sufferings for his name's sake because we get to know him more deeply. And I think if Christ is our confidence, we have every reason to not be afraid, to not cower, to be bold, and to be courageous, to take risks of faith. And I want to end with this quote by William Carey. He was a missionary to India, and as he was thinking about going... I'm sure this was in his mind. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. You know, I want to leave us with homework. I don't want us to just leave and forget this and not feel the weight of following Jesus. And so some homework. I hope that maybe at lunch, maybe some of you at lunch, ask. Ask people, hey, if if you looked at me in my life, what do you think is the thing I put the most confidence and trust in? And you might be surprised. It might be telling. But would you do that? Because if Christ is our supreme confidence, I really believe our lives ought to look a certain way. I think you know it ought to look a certain way. And it may not be easy, but it's something to reflect on, to try, and we do it together. And so I hope that afterward we can. We can share the ways that we're trying to live for him to know him more deeply as he gave his life for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would look upon people like us with so much love to consider us friends, friends that you would die for, that you would suffer to the very end for. And I pray that as those who understand and have tasted that love, that we'd be so moved 
to live for you. That we want to know you more deeply. That as your friends, we want to empathize and understand with those experiences of what it means to even suffer for your name's sake. And Lord, I pray as we do that, will we feel a sense of peace, of love and wholeness like we've never felt before. That truly we could say, we count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.